It's October 7th, 1870, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was today in history in 1870 that in a square in Montmartre, Léon Gambetta wrapped himself in a fur coat and took to the skies above Paris in a hot air balloon. But this was no pleasure flight. The 32-year-old French politician was the hope of a city under siege and was on his way to organise reinforcements, soaring over the German lines and perhaps slightly ill-advisedly shouting, Viva la République, as he went. (laughs) Okay, so we're three months into the Franco-Prussian War. I mean, it's called Franco-Prussian, but actually it's France versus the German armies who sided with Prussia, and they're besieging Paris. And Gambetta, or Gambetta, wants to raise new armies in the provinces to relieve the capital, because he can no longer do what he wants to, coordinating troops around Paris, because the Germans are descending, essentially. And two days prior to this day, on October the 5th, the Germans had established their Grand HQ, at Versailles. I mean, talk about making a statement. And Gambetta's role in trying to raise forces to relieve Paris from the Prussian army and their allies is all the more surprising given that he had actually been very opposed to France declaring mm. war on Prussia. Prussia was very well known for being good at war. That was their <laughs> that was their thing. You know, if you said that something was run with Prussian efficiency, people understood at the time you were talking about the very efficient yeah. Prussian army. So Gambetta realised that it, this might not be the best power to be declaring war on, but France was determined to regain its status as the continent's prime power. The war had not been going well. In fact, ultimately, France would lose a million men the majority of them captured in really large numbers all at once as well that was the that was the embarrassing part and the outcome of the war had been decided more or less at the battle of Sedan after which Napoleon III who was the emperor at the time he surrendered and he was taken prisoner along with 100,000 troops they were really just scooping Mm. up the French army at this point And the news of this disastrous defeat provoked uproar in Paris, where people demanded a removal of the imperial family and a return to the Republic. And Gambetta, who is a Republican politician, was happy to oblige. And in this new national government, he was named Minister of the Interior, which obviously put him in a very important position for the war effort. Yeah, but so Paris at this stage is really holding out against these invaders you know, kind of against hope. They're not going to triumph as history went on to show. But at this stage, they're completely surrounded and hot air balloons became their main means of communication. And so what they were doing was they were trying to send out these hot air balloons and homing pigeons to communicate with the rest of France to try to say where they were at in their own resistance, but also potentially to try to marshal others to their cause. Yeah, I mean, as we discussed in our episode Balloons with Bombs On... Uh, balloons in this era were not conventional weapons, you know, fighting from the air drones, but they were frequently used as kind of apparatus in war. Um, so for observing the German positions would be a classic reason why you need lots of hot air balloons. Uh, and in fact, over the course of the siege of Paris, 66 balloons were flown, um, but also uh, delivering post. And there was actually a kind of like official French postage system using hot air balloon in this era. For the Germans, it was kind of a sport to try and shoot down the balloons and keep the letters because that was a great Mm. souvenir to take back to Bavaria of your time in Paris. You know, a letter written by a Frenchman. Yeah, well, because industry had come to a halt, they used out-of-work seamstresses to sew these huge calico canopies for the balloons, and they used sailors trapped in the city to make the baskets and the netting. Each one took 12 days to make. They were quite big balloons, and they made them inside the halls of Paris's railway stations because, obviously, all of the rail lines were blocked, so they couldn't run any trains either. They'd be piloted out of the city by one or two men, and what would happen was, as we touched on again in our episode of the bomb balloons in Venice, they were almost 
impossible to pilot. So mm. what would happen is that they would float mm. somewhere out of the city. They would then attempt to land in safety, where they would take the mailbag to the nearest postal station to be distributed. It sounds incredibly dangerous and wacky, but it was actually pretty safe. Out of the 66, only five were captured by the Germans and another three were lost at sea. One of them did end up in Norway, which is, you know. And the other downside was obviously that they couldn't get back to Paris. Mm. So a few of them attempted the journey. None of them made it. So what they did was they carried homing pigeons in a basket, which could then be loaded with the return messages and sent back to Paris, although these were even less reliable than the balloons. I mean, part of the reason that their hit rate was so high for having managed to get these balloons out of Paris was because... At the point at which the Prussians started chasing the balloons down, because when, when they launched during daylight hours, they'd just be sort of followed until they couldn't stay in the air anymore, and then the Prussians would surround them and take them captive, they decided that the best thing to do would be to launch at night. And that presented its own problems, but apparently it was an impressive experience. Jules Buffet, who is a naval officer who piloted one of the balloons that was sent out at night, wrote this of his experience. He said, while attending to my balloon's ascent, I looked amazed at the panorama that unfolded beneath us. Silence reigned in the basket, broken only by the words of admiration that escaped our lips. Paris, seen by night, and from that height we had risen to 2,000 metres, was thrilling. The lights on the ramparts combined to surround the city with a girdle of fire. Although presumably fewer lights every time you took a balloon off, because it was gas from the streetlights that was powering the balloons, because they couldn't get any special balloon gas in. You know, you're talking about a situation where the Louvre is a gun factory. <laughs> at this point. The Grand Opera House is stocked with provisions. Mm. The other thing that the balloons were used for was distributing propaganda onto the German soldiers. So, for example, I found this leaflet that was dropped that autumn, quote, The siege will last a long time, and already one sees Germany far from home for the entire winter, the flower of her people, mm. far from wife and child, wailing in misery for their breadwinners i.e., look, fellas, go home to your wives. Please yeah. go away. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is worth a shot, isn't it? But to get back to this balloon journey Yes, the in interior minister in the balloon with a trickle or down the side. Yes. <laughs> well, he didn't get to enjoy the Paris by night balloon tour because he actually set off at 11am uh, in one of two balloons that was launched in front of a large crowd who had assembled at the Place Saint-Pierre in Montmartre. So there was the Georges Sand balloon in which carried two American arms dealers and there was the Armand Barthez which carried Gambetta and his secretary and friend Eugène Spuller wrapped in their uh, fur Can coats. I just say that, that you're making it sound like because there was a crowd and because it launched to some fanfare that this was somehow planned I mean, they told the crowds that Gambetta was going to be flying off because obviously that was a popular bit of propaganda as well. Look, he's going to go and make an army. The arms dealers, you know, they were just trying to make some money out of the war. They didn't think they'd have to be flying over Paris in an emergency balloon. Can you imagine what's been terrifying for them? <laughs> terrifying for the poor arms dealers. <laughs> Won't someone think of the arms dealers? Someone think of the arms dealers. Um, well, and the balloon also carried the pilot, a guy called Trichet, 100 pounds of post and 16 pigeons. Um, as mentioned before, navigation was all but impossible. They were trying to head south to Tours in, in central West France, so south of Paris. But instead, they landed 40 miles north of Paris. But despite these trials, Gambetta was able to reach the town of Amiens. And from there, he was able to take the train to Tours. So he did get there, even though he went in the complete wrong direction and was almost shot twice. And as soon as he had transferred and then arrived in Tours, he organised an army of 100,000 men, which might have been able to relieve Paris, contemporary scholarship thinks, 
if the city of Metz had held out, but meanwhile, Francois-Achille Bazin's surrender brought the army of the Prussian prince Frederick Karl back into the field, and success at this stage was considered pretty much impossible. We still have the literature that he composed whilst he was out there, though, ready to set the public to prepare for mass conscription. Words along the lines of, I'm obviously translated from French, let us rise en masse, rather than have the shame mm. or the embarrassment of the loss. Which is kind of interesting for someone who's escaped Paris in a hot air balloon being worried about embarrassment, isn't it? I mean, when it came to his own personal safety, he was prepared to get in a basket with some pigeons and some streetlights. So despite all of his heroics in the name of the defence of the motherland, the surrender of the French army at Metz actually signalled the end of Gambetta's career for a while because the newly elected Conservative government had no place for Gambetta, who was a well-known radical. So radical that his speeches often caused disorder in the parliamentary chamber. He was once ordered to bring his supporters into line when they were cheering and jeering too loudly and he cried indignation excludes calm (laughs) yeah he was a real firebrand and thinking about the outcome of this particular moment and this particular war for balloons and balloon kind it was really from this point that there was an increasing amount of discussion about how balloon flight and further flight in general could be used for military applications and work on new steering methods because this was obviously the problem that was being experienced by the people taking off from Paris was that they didn't have any way to steer where they were going. That started to be worked on and the first dirigibles actually took to the air just years after this. In in 1884, the first airship named La France took off flown by two French military officers from the engineering corps. It's so funny, isn't it, to think that there was a time really not that long ago, you know, only 150 years ago, when balloons would be considered as like a convenient <laughs> yeah. emergency evacuation technology. Like, and when you think about right. it, actually, they sort of are compared to planes. Like, planes are obviously more convenient and better and more resistant to being shot down by Germans on the floor. But you can make a balloon yourself. Like, under pressure, I could contribute to the making of a hot air balloon, but I couldn't build a plane. But if you've got some gas yeah. and a basket <laughs> and some cloth, you could potentially, maybe, if you were fearing for your life, Build a hot air balloon. You will need 12 days in an yeah. abandoned train station hall and many out-of-work <laughs> And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.